The text we're studying today is what is known um, often as Palm Sunday. I know we're a couple weeks early, right? Um, And it's interesting, you look through Matthew, I mean, there's still several more chapters to go, but but the rest of the book of Matthew is, by and large, going to be this this last week of Jesus' life uh, here in Jerusalem, and then, of course, chapter 28 will detail his resurrection. So Jesus has intentionally timed his arrival in Jerusalem to coincide with the week-long celebration of Passover. And so at this time, there's great crowds of of pilgrims, um, you know, all the Jews that are dispersed, they're all converging here on Jerusalem for this national holiday. And like I said, Jesus and his disciples, Matthew's already alerted us that they're traveling with a group from their hometown, from their home area there of Galilee. So let's uh, read the text together, and I'd ask you to stand, please, in honor of God's word. And please follow along as I read verses 1 through 22. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting Hosanna to the son of David blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest and when he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up saying who is this and the crowd said this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee and Jesus entered the temple And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Again, what a privilege we have to have these words and actions recorded for us. So thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
Well, there is an expression, a picture is worth, what, a thousand words, right. Well, today as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we see him carry out three symbolic acts, and those acts speak volumes of truth to those who have eyes to see. In verses 1 through 3, we see Jesus making preparation for this first symbolic act. Again, verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. So I want to point out these three acts symbolic acts that Jesus does throughout our passage today, verses 1 through 22. And here he's preparing for the first one. And let's understand the setting here. The Mount of Olives is just east of Jerusalem. So what Jesus is doing is before they actually get to Jerusalem, he sends these two disciples into Jerusalem, into town, to, to um, gather up, to retrieve a donkey and its colt. And of course you see Christ's sovereignty Um, in orchestrating the details the disciples find everything and uh, just as he said they would and and everything takes place just as he said they would and so they bring the donkey and the colt back to Jesus and so as we're reading this especially if we're reading it for the first time we'd say well what why does Jesus want these animals right and well it's the colt specifically that Jesus wants and Matthew tells us why in the very next verse look at verse four this took place this is Matthew's common um, formula that he's used throughout his gospel, right? Whenever he sees Jesus uh, fulfilling prophecy, he highlights it to the readers. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then again, um, Verse 6 tells us the disciples did what, exactly what Jesus had directed them. They bring, verse 7, the donkey and the colt, put on, the, the, on them their cloaks, and Jesus sits on the cloaks and rides the, the colt. So, what, verse 5 there, Matthew is quoting, he, he says, from the prophet. Well, it's actually the prophet Zechariah. He's quoting Zechariah 9.9, which was a prophecy over 650 years earlier, right, that spoke of the Messiah. It said that the Messiah, the promised king, the long-awaited king, would ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And so that's why Jesus sent them for this colt. That's why Jesus is intentionally doing this, so that he can fulfill that prophecy. It's interesting, by the way, when you read through the Gospels, this is the only time we see recorded for us Jesus actually riding on an animal. <laughs> he's usually walking, right? He's, he's all, all, you know, just, we just hear about him and his disciples walking. And, and here they've been walking on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And in fact, it was actually customary for pilgrims to culminate their trek to Jerusalem by actually walking the final stretch into the city. So in other words, even if you were coming to Jerusalem, let's say, to celebrate the Passover or one of the other feasts, if you had been riding on, on an animal, once you get to this home stretch, it, the, it was kind of expected, if you were able, that you would walk that last stretch. But we see Jesus doing right the opposite, right? He's walked the whole way, and then at the very end, he gets on this colt. (laughs) 
to ride into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. And like I said, he's doing this deliberately, obviously intentionally, so that he can fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah 9. And so for those around him and those watching this, those who the Lord had given eyes to see, their minds should have went to the, the prophet Zechariah. Right? They should have said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is how the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And not only the fact that he's riding on this colt, but later in Zechariah, in chapter 14, verses 4 through 5, it says something else about the Messiah. It says the Messiah will reveal himself from the Mount of Olives. So, wow, we've got like kind of a double fulfillment going on here, right? By Jesus riding the colt of a donkey down from the Mount of Olives, he is symbolically and publicly declaring I am the Messiah. I am the one of whom the prophet spoke. I am the promised king from God who has come to save his people and reign forever. He's making a public declaration. He's symbolically, he's declaring that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Okay, so that's fairly easy to understand, right? Now, you may be wondering, well, why did God even do it that way? <laughs> why, why did God, you know, hundreds of years earlier through Zechariah say, he's going to ride on the colt of a donkey, right? That seems a little, a little perhaps random and actually a little kind of a paradox in one sense, right? Uh, why, why wouldn't God have his promised king ride in on some kind of big stallion, right? You know, we, we talk about the, what, what's the expression, you know, uh, Waiting for a knight on a white horse, right? Why wouldn't God have his Messiah arrive that way? Well, that brings us, if you're taking notes, that brings us to the first point in our outline. This first symbolic act declared, number one, the arrival of the promised king who saves through humble sacrifice. The arrival of the promised king who saves through humble sacrifice. You see, Zechariah in his prophecy about the Messiah, he describes the Messiah as gentle and riding on a donkey. And so, God, hundreds, again, hundreds of years earlier, God was already showing us and telling his people what kind of king this was going to be. That this king was going to be gentle. Again, it's, it's kind of a paradox. You don't think of a king riding on a donkey. Right? You, you think of a king riding on an animal of war, on a, on a horse. But no, him coming in on a donkey shows that he's gentle and it shows it's a symbol of peace. It shows that Jesus is, remember one of the titles for him? He is the Prince of Peace. Certainly as the Son of God, as the promised Messiah, he has the right to come in war and in judgment. Right? Just like we saw recently, he, he could have come and demanded to be served. He deserved that for who he is. But no, he didn't come that way. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so he's restraining his judgment. He's actually come to save his people. And and we'll we'll say this a couple of times today. Not from the Romans, right? That's what many in the crowd are expecting and hoping for. He hasn't come to save them from the Romans, but rather from sin and death. 
He's come to deliver his people not by leading some kind of military uh, coup and overthrowing the Romans, taking back Jerusalem. No, he's come, by, he's come to save them by laying down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. And so we see that Jesus, the promised king, brings peace. He is the prince of peace. And so it's a good time for us to just even stop in the story and say, have I experienced that peace? Do I know that peace that Jesus brings? And you have to answer that for yourself, right? Do you know that peace? Do you know that you have peace with your, with your creator? That you're reconciled to him? Do you have the peace of knowing that you, your sins are forgiven? That you're loved by God, that you're adopted by God through faith in Christ. That's how Jesus saves his people. And you can know that peace. You can have that peace today. A peace that can never be taken away. You read Romans 5 and it talks about how um, we have peace with with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in, in this grace we stand It's not a fleeting peace. It's not like a a distraction kind of peace. No, it's a lasting peace. You can know that peace today by turning from your sins and and by faith embracing Jesus as Lord and Savior. You can be reconciled to God and know that peace. And so Jesus here in Matthew 21, he intentionally enters Jerusalem in such a way to communicate that he's the Messiah and what he's come to do. He's come to bring peace by laying down his life. Well, at least part of that symbolic declaration was not missed on the Galilean crowd. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So, you know, that's a cultural thing, right? Laying down your, the, their cloaks on the road is kind of like a way of, we say, laying, uh, rolling out the red carpet for the king, right? And, and the reason they would wave palm branches is um, 150 years earlier, uh, when Simon Maccabeus delivered Jerusalem, that was celebrated with, with the waving of palm branches and musical instruments. So they're thinking about, uh, again, deliverance from the Romans, Right? <laughs> And, and again, these are the Galileans doing this primarily. They, they've been traveling with Jesus. Many of them, no doubt, have witnessed some of his public ministry in Galilee. So they've seen him do the mighty works. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him teach with authority. And so some of them, by God's grace, are connecting the dots and saying, this is the Messiah. That He's doing what the Messiah was supposed to do, Right? And so they're excited about that. There's a fervor. This is the promised Messiah who's bringing in the long-awaited kingdom of God. And so as they're heading down to Jerusalem, they're, they're with the Messiah, right, going from the Mount of Olives. I mean, it's like all the pieces are coming together for them. This is the year of Jubilee, they're thinking. Jesus has come to set the captives free. And so their excitement and anticipation uh, leads to shouts of praise in verse 9, right? It says they're going before him saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save us. And you know son of David is a a messianic title, right? We talked about that last week. We've seen it uh, several times in Matthew. That that 
David was promised that one of his sons would be the, the, the promised Messiah. And so they're, they're saying, yes, this is the Messiah. Save us, Messiah. Save us. And, and then blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118, what I read earlier in the call to worship, right? And that psalm depicts the king of Israel leading pilgrims to the temple after some major victory and being greeted by the priests in the temple who welcome the king and celebrate his victory, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who's come and has delivered us. And so just picture the scene, right? I mean, this is, this is a, a, a vibrant crowd. This is an excited scene. They're shouting this about Jesus as he makes his way toward the temple in Jerusalem. They're saying Jesus is this great king who will lead us on to victory. But again, they're, they're not understanding yet, many of them at least, are not understanding his kingship they're, they're expecting him right then and there to restore the physical national kingdom that Israel had under King David. Hoping he will uh, throw out the Romans, throw out all the Gentiles and, and uh, rule over a physical kingdom from Jerusalem there. And so they're, they have the wrong expectations, like I said earlier. Yes, he's come to save, but not from the Romans. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus had come to deliver his people from their greatest enemy, sin and death and Satan. And he brought in the kingdom of God, right? We've talked about that many times in Matthew. Jesus, yes, did bring in the long-awaited kingdom of God, but for right now, it's not a physical national kingdom. It's a spiritual one. Right? One day when he returns, then it'll be a physical kingdom that covers the ends of the earth. But right now, it's, it's, it's a spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns over his people. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So this reminds us about something that is important, especially as we not only try to understand the scene, but moving forward. I don't know if through the years when you've, uh, you know, read or, or heard preaching or whatever, um, you know, maybe you've, you've heard statements like, wow, you know, how, how could the crowd be so fickle, right? You know, on Sunday they're, they're saying Hosanna and praising him, and then by Friday they're yelling crucify him, crucify him, right? And, you know, perhaps there were some fickleness, you know, and some people might have changed, but but I, I think that notion is by and large wrong because I think what, what is actually happening is for the most part you have two different crowds there, right? Again, the, the people yelling Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the Galilean crowd, right? And I think once you get to Friday, it's going to be mostly different people, a Jerusalem crowd that the, that the Pharisees and, and chief priests stir up. And so you kind of... I thought now was an appropriate time to mention that because you kind of see the two different um, pr- people kind of processing this, right? You know, the, the people in the Jerusalem, you know, they see this entourage coming and what's all this hoop, hooping and hollering, right? You know, and what's going on here? And, and you know, they're, they're, almost, they're kind of troubled by it even, right? You know, kind of suspicious of it. And the, then the people who are with Jesus are saying, this is Jesus of Nazareth. 
This is the prophet. This is the, the one who's, who, like Moses, would, would come out, be a prophet like Moses. This is the, another in reference to being the Messiah. Okay? So once he arrives in Jerusalem, Jesus carries out a second important act. Remember, we want to consider three symbolic acts today. The first one was riding in on the colt of the donkey from the Mount of Olives. Well, now we're going to get into this second one. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 13, he said to them, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so what was happening here is, this is the court of Gentiles, by the way. And, and uh, so there were these money changers, right? Because... And, and there were people selling sacrifices. You've got all these people coming from uh, on this long pilgrimage, so they don't bring animals to sacrifice with them. So there's people there, you know, seeing this as an opportunity. The religious leaders, the people running the temple, you know, see, that, hey, this is a great business. You know, this is like having, you know, hosting a major sporting event, right? You know, in our day and age. That, you know, this is a chance to really make some money. And so they are selling sacrifices, animals to sacrifice. And not only that, but then... Uh, you had to pay a temp- <clears throat> excuse me a temple tax, which we've Matthew's brought up before, and and that had to use a special kind of currency, right? A special kind of coin, and so there's it's like exchanging money, kind of like you have to do when you go in another country, right? So they didn't the only place they could get that money was right there, that right currency, and so another way to make some money, you know, charge them extra, make some on the top, and so this is all taking place, and it's just turned the. This is the outer court, what was called the court of Gentiles here in the temple. And it's just turned it into this big chaotic marketplace. And so not only are the practices, no doubt, uh, I mean, they're necessary, but no doubt they're being shady in how they carry those out and being greedy and, and taking advantage. But it's also just turned this into a chaotic zoo, right? And, and for, for the Gentiles, this was as far as they could go. They couldn't go any further. So the, the Gentiles, remember, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations, right? You know, and so, and, and so God would, was supposed to be working through Israel to even draw Gentiles to himself. And, and so for Gentiles who are coming to worship, it's like they're, they're trying to worship in the midst of, of all this going on. And so Jesus sees this and he's, he's angry about it right? He's like, you guys are, have ruined the purpose of the temple. And let's, looking more, more closely what he says, verse 13, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, whenever you see that, it is written, right? That should, your antenna should go up like, oh, he's He's quoting something, right? And your Bible even probably has the quotation marks. He's quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. Matter of fact, two different passages in the Old Testament. That phrase, you have made it a den of robbers, that's a quote from Jeremiah 7, 11. And so whenever you see something quoted, uh, you, you have to look at the context because that's, that plays into the, the quote oftentimes. And so in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, the prophet is proclaiming the word of the Lord while standing in the gate of the temple. And in that sermon, Jeremiah is indicting the people for gathering in the temple to worship God, but yet living like pagans the, the rest of the, the week, right? And so in Jeremiah 7, he's, he's rebuking the people for their hypocrisy and 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 
he goes on and, and exposes their false sense of security, and Jeremiah does. Because what, what, he, what he rebukes them for and what he calls them out for is they thought they were secure. They thought, hey, we're the people of God. We have the temple of God. We have the presence of God in the temple. It's okay. It's fine what we're doing. It's fine that we're, we're being hypocrites here. It's fine that we, we, we come and, and bring our, our token sacrifices and say our, our praises, but yet the rest of the time we're living with idolatrous hearts. We're not, we're not devoted to the Lord. We're not keeping his commandments. It's okay. We're secure, and specifically because of the temple. Remember, the temple was so important to the nation of Israel. It was like key to their identity and as the people of God. And so here in Matthew 21, by quoting that sermon from Jeremiah that was given at the temple, Jesus is doing a very similar thing. He's denouncing the the current nation of Israel, their persistent disobedience, and he's announcing the fact that the temple is going to be destroyed. Why? Because the leaders are refusing to listen to God's word. And specifically, that they're, they're... uh, their disobedience, their idolatry, their rebellion is culminating in the fact that they're rejecting Christ as their Messiah. They're rejecting Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so Jesus says, hey, you can go on and worship as usual in the temple, but you've made this a place of a den of robbers. You've desecrated this temple by your unbelief. You are claiming to worship God, but you've not worshiped the promised one that God has sent. Right? Do you see the, the, the hypocrisy there, the disconnect there? How can you claim to worship God, but yet you're rejecting the one whom God has sent? You say you're longing for the, the coming kingdom of God, but you've not recognized that that kingdom is here, present in the person of Jesus. You think that you're coming here to enjoy the presence of God, but I'm here to tell you God is rejecting you. And he's going to withdraw or basically has already withdrawn his presence from you. So all of that was, was behind what Christ was saying as he quotes Jeremiah 7. The second quote then that he declares, my house shall be a house of prayer. That's a quote from Isaiah 56, 7. And again, in the context of, of that whole chapter of Isaiah 56, you have the Lord, Yahweh, announcing that his salvation has come He's going to gather in the exiles, and he makes a point in that chapter of saying that salvation is going to extend to the Gentiles. It's not just the Jewish exiles I'm going to gather in, but that salvation is going to extend to the Gentiles as well, that the Gentiles will be allowed to worship in God's temple. The Gentiles will be allowed to enjoy the presence of God, which is why verse 7 says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. So, Chapter 56 comes in a section of Isaiah that's talking about the Messiah, what the Messiah is going to do, the age of salvation, this new work of salvation that God is doing through the Messiah. They are describing the saving work of Christ, that God is gathering his people together, that God is is gathering a new people together. No longer is he just working with one nation of Israel. He's gathering a new people, a new humanity like we saw in Ephesians 2, made up of Jews and Gentiles and, and bringing them together in a beautiful temple that is not built by human hands. And like I said, the New Testament fleshes this out, right? Fleshes out the, this concept of the temple, right? 
Jesus in, in John 2, he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Well, he's referring to himself. He's the temple. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's the, the, the presence of God among them. And then he, through his saving work, he's building a new temple where he'll be the cornerstone like we saw in Ephesians 2, made up of living stones. <clears throat> Excuse me. Right? You, if you're in Christ, you're part of that new temple. You're living stones in that new temple, that the spiritual building that's being built on <clears throat> the foundation of Christ and the preaching of the apostles about Christ. And so you, we, as the church, as the people of God, are the temple. The place where God dwells. The place where God is praised. The place where people can come and see a display of God's glory. And that's what Jesus is, is talking about here. He, he's saying, guys, there's a new program happening. We, we often think about this action by Jesus as the cleansing of the temple. And, and in some ways it was, certainly. But really, it's him announcing it's time for a new temple. The time that the prophets uh, predicted and described in the future, that time has come. We're, we're, the new age has come. I'm, in, I'm inaugurating the new covenant. I'm going to establish the new covenant by my blood. And so if you're taking notes, you could write it this way. This symbolic act declared replacement of the old temple with the true temple of God. This new temple, the, the holy city, is being built person by person through the gospel. And this new temple is never going to fall, right? You see that throughout Israel's history, right? You know, a temple would be destroyed. Then they'd have to rebuild it. Then it'd be destroyed. And, and this one here is going to be destroyed that Jesus has entered. But this temple that Jesus is building will never be destroyed. It's going to be a spiritual house before the Lord. And it's going to go throughout this age. And then when Christ returns, it'll continue throughout the age to come, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the people of God. We, loved ones, are the temple. We enjoy the glorious presence of God dwelling in our midst forever. And so Jesus here in Matthew 21, he's come into the temple not just to cleanse it, but really to fulfill the purpose of the temple. He's come as the Lord's Messiah to his temple to announce that this new age of salvation has come. Yes, God's temple would be a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just because foreigners can come and, and worship you know, at, the, at the physical temple in Jerusalem. No, because God through the gospel is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God is reconciling them. God by his spirit will indwell people from all nations. Now the nations would no longer need to come to the temple to find the Lord. The Lord is seeking them through the proclamation of the gospel. See, doesn't this all just encourage you, I hope, and, and, and get you excited for, for the task we've been commissioned to? Of making disciples, proclaiming the good news, proclaiming to people, behold your God. He's, he's come to reconcile his people, to save them, to meet with you, to draw you to himself. So look at the aftermath of what Jesus did in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, 
and he healed them, right? Can you imagine? I mean, after he's turned over the tables, driven out all these guys, and, you know, it's just kind of like dust is in the air, right? And, and it's like now we see the Messiah continuing to, to minister. We see him continuing to, to bring in the kingdom of God. Jesus has cleared the temple with mighty authority and power, and, and now how appropriate that he would heal the blind and the lame who came to him there in the temple, once again demonstrating that he is the promised Messiah by doing the very things that the scripture said the Messiah would do. Now look at the reaction. This is going to build, right? We've already seen that the, the religious leaders um, uh, in conflict with Jesus, right? And, and, and wanting to destroy him. And now th- this is really going to pick up speed. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in, in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They're furious with Jesus, not only for disrupting their profitable system that they had in the temple, but especially because they see what's going on, right? They're like, we see what the people are saying. We hear what they're, they're singing and praising. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, you're the Messiah, And obviously, they didn't think Jesus was. They didn't believe that. And so they're telling Jesus, tell them to knock it off. Tell them to stop it. Don't you hear what they're saying? Tell them to stop praising and declaring that you are the Messiah. What does Jesus say? (laughs) He's like, yes, I hear what they're saying. Have you never read, right? Ooh, another little jab to the religious leaders. Because he's quoting the Old Testament again. Guys, don't you study your Bibles? Have you never read Psalm 8? Verse 2, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. <laughs> Haven't you read your scriptures? This, he's, that, this verse talks about praising God. That's what is happening. So you see what he's claiming there? Again, that he's divine. That he's God. This is being fulfilled right before you. I'm the divine Messiah. This was a mic drop moment, as we say in our day and age, Right? Because that's exactly what he did then in verse 7. He dropped the mic and left them and went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus is not only declaring this new work that he is doing, but he's also pronouncing judgment on the old system here because they had failed. He's pronouncing judgment on the temple. He, and so many people see some symbolism even in this, the fact that he leaves the temple, right? Just as the prophet Ezekiel saw the glory depart from the temple, so the religious leaders there saw the glory of, of the Son of God leaving the, the, the temple. Jesus, to cleansing the temple, declared that a new temple, the true temple, was going to replace this physical temple. And he declared coming judgment on the current temple and the current Jewish religious system. And that leads us right into the, this third and final symbolic act in verse 18. And I'll be very brief with it because it's, it's pretty straightforward. Look at verse 18 with me. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, right? Remember, Jesus is Fully God, fully man, he's hungry. Verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, I had to to cover this text too. I know I was debating because it was getting kind of long, but 
this, this links directly to the temple. Matter of fact, if you look in Mark's gospel, he actually uh, he has the sandwich technique, as they call it, where he, he has the, the first part of the, the, the Jesus cursing the, the fig tree, then he has the cleansing of the temple, and then he ha- has them talking about the, coming back to the withered fig tree later. So the, the fig tree and the temple are intricately linked, okay, in, in the message that they're getting across. So what, what is that message? Well, first, many of you probably know this better than me. I don't know if any of you have fig trees in your, your yard, and I'm not sure if it would, the climate would be exactly the same, or, you know, the, the, the way they carry out their seasons would be exactly the same, probably similar. But <clears throat> remember, what time of year are we? This is Passover time. This is late April, okay? Figs are harvested in the fall. But in the spring, fig trees develop small green clusters known as early figs. You even see that talked about in the Old Testament, okay? So that's what Jesus was going for here in Matthew 21. People would eat those early figs. Once a, tree, once a fig tree had early figs, then it would uh, develop leaves. Okay, the early figs came first, then it would leaf out. I guess that's how you say it, right? So a fig tree with full leaves this time of year promised Early figs. You would expect to find early figs there on this fig tree. But what did Jesus find when he went to it? He went up to this tree that's all leafed out, expecting figs. He found no figs. He found only leaves. The tree had all the outer adornment, but no fruit. It gave the appearance of being fruitful, but it was barren. Do you see the connection to the temple? Do you see the connection to how the Jews were carrying out their their, um, religious system? I mean, think about the temple, right? It, oh, it was beautiful. It was, you know, I mean, one part of the Gospels, right, that, you know, the disciples are enamored with the, the great stones, you know, of the temple and all the adornment. Yeah. All, a lot of adornment, but no fruit. No true fruit of, of worship of God. No, no worshiping God according to his word. No loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. No, no uh, accepting God's chosen one, the Messiah, and believing in him. So yes, they had a beautiful temple, but no true love and worship for God. They had the scriptures, they had their traditions, but they had rejected Jesus as Messiah, the one to whom the scriptures pointed. And so by Jesus cursing the fig tree, that's symbolic of the judgment that was going to come on Jerusalem in just a few short years, really, a few decades. In AD 70, the Romans would destroy the temple and Jerusalem. And we'll talk more about that in chapter 24. But for now, understand that Jesus cursing the fig tree was symbolic of, and this is your last um, point in your outline, coming judgment on the nation of Israel. Coming judgment. It's interesting, by the way, (laughs) the last few verses of this section, the disciples don't seem to latch on to this the symbolism, they don't seem to latch on to what, what this is 
communicating what this is pointing toward. Rather, they're just latching on to the power that Jesus has, which he has just shown. How did it wither so quickly, right? And then that leads, it seems to me like Jesus patient with them and says, okay, fine, we'll talk about that now. And, and he leads into that discussion about prayer and faith. And I wasn't going to deal with those verses For our purposes this morning, I wanted to focus on these three symbolic acts. Again, they declared, number one, the arrival of the promised king who saves through humble sacrifice. Number two, the replacement of the old temple with the true temple of God, the living stones. Number three, coming judgment on the nation of Israel. And so I end, I close with what I began with, right? Remember, a picture's worth a thousand words. These acts communicated important truths, right? They, these acts were to grab people's attention. And so today we've had the privilege of hearing God's word. We've had the privilege of, of seeing the, these, as it were, seeing Jesus performing these acts. And so the question for us is, how will we respond? Will we respond appropriately Will you respond appropriately to these symbolic acts? You say, well, what do you mean? What what would that look like to respond appropriately? Well, do you recognize that Jesus is king? That he died and rose again to save his people? Do you believe that? Do you understand that God judges sin? That you are a sinner? And that the only way to escape his judgment is to turn from your sin and by faith embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you you recognize that Jesus is Lord and Savior? Yes, he died to pay for the sins of his people, but on the third day he rose again. He is Lord of heaven and earth and that one day we will all answer to him. I pray that we all recognize that. And so as I thought about how should we respond to these acts, these acts that we've had the privilege of of seeing through God's word, well, believers today, let us stand in awe of our humble king who gave his life to ransom us. Let us praise Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us for coming to earth, for establishing the new covenant with his shed blood, for creating the true temple of God with himself as the cornerstone. Let us praise him for his grace and mercy that we get to be included in that number, that we get to be part of that temple, part of that new humanity, part of the people of God. Let us praise him for his grace. And let us then as living stones in this true temple be a display, by, by, with God's, by God's enabling, let us seek to be a display of God's glory as we daily present our lives as living sacrifices to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your Son, Our Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you, Lord, even as we see him enter Jerusalem, we're again reminded of his his, uh, love, of his boldness, of his faithfulness to the mission that you had given him. He knows that suffering awaits him. He knows by going public that he's, he's 
simply um, kicking all of this into action. He didn't try to slip in unannounced. He went public to fulfill scripture, which will ultimately lead to um, his arrest and, and, and crucifixion. And so we praise you for uh, your grace in sending your son to save us. We praise you that you are faithful to all your promises and this reminds us of that today. We praise you for what Christ has done, that he delivers his people. And what a privilege it is, Father, to be one of your people. Forgive us for taking that for granted. What a privilege we have of knowing that we're at peace with you, of knowing that our sins are forgiven, of of being part of this holy temple unto you. Oh, Father, forgive us for, for failing to be a display of your glory so often, for, for uh, continuing to, um, times when we continue to live according to the flesh, times when we, we don't seek you first in your kingdom. Help us individually and collectively as a Bounding Grace Church, help us to be that display of your glory. Help us to be a place where your praise is is um, sung and lived out not only on Sunday but all through the week. May you be pleased, Lord, to draw others to yourself through, through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and we'll conclude declaring our praises.